Welcome, everybody, to the Kona Shane Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Rourke. Guys, I am here today with uh, my friend, Dr. Sean Sanders. Uh, you might recognize Dr. Sanders. He was on uh, earlier in the year. Uh, he is a neurologist in Seattle. And we started talking last time he was here about changing roles for uh, general practitioners and technicians in modern medicine. And he's a big uh, advocate for accessibility to care. And I wanted to get him back and unpack some of these things and say, what does this look like? Like, what does it mean when we talk about expanding the role of the general practitioners? Because I think a lot of people think uh, about general practitioners getting squeezed. They think about technicians doing more and more and specialists doing more and more. And what's left for the old general practitioner? I think Sean's got a really good answer for that. And the answer is that uh, maybe specialists shouldn't be doing more and more. Maybe as we push to keep uh, access to care uh, front and center and be able to get uh, people the services they need, Maybe it's time for general practitioners to start picking back up some of the stuff that we used to do. And what are the barriers to that? We talk about that a little bit. What are the benefits to that? We talk about it. We talk about it from a financial standpoint. We talk about it from a career enjoyment standpoint. We talk about it uh, from a pet healthcare standpoint. It is a really fun, really good conversation. This fits right into my recent thing of trying to get my head around what that medicine is going to look like in the next five to 10 years. Man, I like Sean's vision. I think it's pretty good. I think we should they really think about going in that direction and so anyway guys i hope you'll enjoy this this is a big make you think episode let's get into it this is your show we're glad you're here we want to help you in your veterinary career welcome to the cone of shame with dr andy rourke Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Sean Sanders. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing today? Man, I'm doing great. Uh, I am I am really happy to, to have you back on the podcast. I really enjoyed the first time that we got to talk. I left uh, with a lot of ideas and a lot of questions, and we just flat ran out of time the last time you were here. And so I was like, well, I'm going to get Sean back. We're going to talk some more. So yeah, thanks for making time. Well, I'm glad you asked me to come back. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. So for those who don't know you, you are a veterinary neurologist in Seattle and right. uh, and you do a number of things. You have a PhD in neuroscience and you're a teacher and you're traveling to Germany a couple of days to do some lecturing there as well. You also uh, work in some telemedicine stuff. You just, you have a lot of really interesting, um, you have a lot of things going on is what I would say. So yeah, well, I had this, uh, you know, getting back into sort of the conversation I wanted to pick back up with you was really kind of about the future, the next five to 10 years of vet medicine for, for practitioners in the trenches and kind of what it looks like. And the reason I, I wanted to talk to you about that, I, I just been thinking a lot about this. And I just had an article that came out at the time that we we're recording this. And I wrote about um, standing back and looking at the profession. And I really see this tectonic shift going on where we have a customer driven world in a way that we haven't in the past. And so I'm looking around and I'm seeing things like Chewy coming into the space and you know they are they dominate in customer service and pet owners like their home delivery and they like working with them and we're having telemedicine come up and pet owners are getting used to these services and we're having a problem with a shortage of veterinarians and getting people in to get the care that they want. And I don't think pet owners are handling that very well. My my take on this really is if you have demand from pet owners and you have people who want to provide the services, our 
our culture, our society, America in general, or in specific, I guess, is really set up to facilitate capitalism, which is if somebody wants it and somebody else wants to provide it, for the most part, our society is set up to make those things happen. And I look at, at, at our profession and, and we're we're feeling a lot of change sort of being thrust upon us. Like I said, telemedicine is really changing things. We've got talk about mid-level practitioners, uh, things like that, utilizing technicians in a, in a new and interesting way. All of these sorts of things uh, that, are, that are meant to just make care more accessible, more convenient, and pet owners are kind of clamoring for them. And so I'm looking at that. I think I, think I call that tectonic. Because I, I think that the ground is changing. I don't know that we're going to be able to hold these sort of changes back. I think that ultimately uh, pet owners know what they want and they're being offered a lot of things and they're going to push our profession in the way that is convenient for them. And I think, I think our two options are try to dig in our heels and I think we're going to get crushed or to look at the landscape, say, this is where things are going. Let's reposition ourselves so that uh, so that we can you know so that we can prosper in the new world that's coming. So so let me let me just stop there and sort of say I sort of threw, threw a lot a lot a lot at you. What do you think when I say that? Does that kind of match up with with the general industry trends that you're seeing and the way you see our profession being affected? Yeah, I I completely agree. I think. Uh... You know, looking back at veterinary medicine, or we could say medicine in general, it's it's always been a bit of that uh, kind of a patriarchal type of uh, system where where the doctor tells you what to do and you do it. Uh, you know, gone are the days of James Harriet where he would he would tell you it's you know it's it's time to put horribles back uh, back to sleep because I've got a broken tooth, and so you would be like, what? Uh, I don't have any say in this, and we're getting into a time where veterinarians and clients have more of a symbiotic relationship. It's more of a shared communication. And so, as you mentioned, we've got this market-driven economy where the, the clients are starting to shop around. And not only are they shopping around for products, but they're shopping around for accessibility and cost. And, uh, you know, we know that there are inflection points with everything and we see it in technology and we are seeing it, I believe in veterinary medicine right now. I think we're at a, a kind of a, a revolution right now where the, where the practice of veterinary medicine is changing. I went through one back in the late nineties when specialty medicine kind of came on the field, so to speak, where it, it moved from primarily focused in the universities to focused into the large urban areas and now it's you know it's just spread out and grown and grown and grown um, so I, I i agree with you completely that we need to look at the profession we need to stand back and look at the profession and we need to decide what is this going to look like in five or ten years and we can be the drivers of that innovation always when you talk about change that scares people it's, it's just it's natural for us to be scared about change but if we look back and we look at things that have changed in our lives, just, you know, the, the digital camera, the personal computer, the taxi cab, all of these things have changed in a way that we can't imagine going back to the way it used to be. I, I agree with that. Let, let's pick up on this. You, you mentioned uh, the, the spread of specialty medicine. The last time that you were on, we were talking a bit about this and we were talking about accessibility and we were talking about a shortage of specialists and, and people not being able to get in for specialty care or limited funds and resources to get into specialty care and things like that. And your position, as you sort of explained it then, was we have uh, general practitioners have given away 
a lot of their um i don't know a lot of their utility in some ways to the specialist they have stepped back and said oh we're this is going to be a specialist thing we're going to let the specialist do that and now that it's hard to get people in for specialty care or things like that or they're not willing to go it may be time for general practitioners to really think critically about re-expanding their lane, if you will, and taking back on some of these. So uh, let, let me let me put that back to you and say, do you still feel that way? And 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 if so, sort of start to start to set up for me what what you think that system could look like. I think the the root of it is with the general practice, but I also think it expen- it ex- extends to specialists as well. You know, when uh, when I started specialty practice in two thousand and two, finished my residency, there there wasn't a lot uh, in Seattle. There were there was no specialty center. And over the years, we developed this. Um, specialists came together. We formed these large, these large multi-specialty, gigantic clinics, and we were there, ready to take the cases. And so we kind of trained everybody that you know you need to send the cases to us because that's where you're going to get the best care. And unfortunately, you know, looking back at that, you may you may have been a veterinarian at that time that had 35 years of experience in doing splenectomies and doing enterotomies and GDVs. And all of a sudden you're kind of being told that, well, maybe you're not the best person to do that anymore. But I look back and I say, well, well, who was a better person? You know, a, a recent resident who's done maybe two on their own compared to a GP who's been out there doing them for years. So I think in to some degree specialists, we had the effect of convincing people that they needed to send us the cases. And maybe that was the best thing for the, for the patient, uh, especially if you're talking about the high intense cases, uh, brain surgery, back surgery, adrenalectomies, you know, uh, the things that require a lot of capital intensive infrastructure to get going, like overnight management or endoscopy towers, things of that nature. Um, but in doing that, I think what we did was we were so welcoming to all of these cases and all, I won't speak for every specialist cause I'll get hammered if I do that. But I think I can speak for, for neurologists. Um, you know, one, one thing that I commonly saw in practice was a big time suck for me was just chronic management of seizure cases. And there is no reason why these can't be managed in general practice. Um, it just requires a patient and some basic drugs and knowledge. Um, but what we found was that when when I started my practice of specialty medicine, I kind of opened the doors and I continually said, yes, 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 send me every case. And so that's what people got used to. And so by doing that, I think that one of the things that happened was general practitioners probably got the impression, and it was a real one, that you know you shouldn't be doing these cases. You need to send the seizure case to the neurologist because they're the one best equipped to handle that patient. And, and you know, there might have been some general practitioners out there. I, I'd, I'd like to hear from them uh, that actually enjoyed treating seizures chronically. Um, I know it's, it's not a fun thing for everyone. But, but I think in doing that, we kind of took away that, that self-reliance that people naturally develop on themselves or that problem-solving ability that they have to take care of their patients. And over the years, that worked great. But as specialty clinics expanded, we started to take away cases from the general practitioner. We started to take cases away from the universities. And so as that university caseload went down, you saw the training opportunities for residents and 
people who were going to go into general practice kind of got lower and lower. And, and it was almost like those cases were being sequestered in the specialty hospitals. So I think over time, what happened was people just got in the natural mode of, well, you know, that's how human medicine went. You sent, you sent the case to the specialist and it got taken care of. And if something went south, then it, it wasn't your problem. And so that, that's kind of great. Unfortunately, what's happened now is that we're at a point where especially hospitals, large clinics are starting to shut down because they don't have enough staff. Costs are still going up in order to maintain a margin that the, the owners of the practices need. And so that's creating barriers to care. And those barriers to care might be accessibility from time, like I can't get that patient in for six weeks, or it might be a barrier to entry due to cost because it's just not affordable for people to do things anymore. And so I believe that general practitioners and specialists need to start looking at what they actually do in practice and focus their energies on the things that drive their passion and that they are truly equipped to do. So for me personally, I really enjoy surgery. So my time is best spent in the surgery suite doing a two or three hour surgery as opposed to in an exam room explaining somebody, you know, why we monitor drugs for, for seizure management. They do it, but it, but there might be others who enjoy that more and they don't like surgery. So I can use that as an example to say, well, how can I focus my practice on what drives me? And in general practice, I see, and I look at this, so I'm a veterinarian first and foremost, and I'm a general practitioner because I have pets and I take care of all my own pets as much as I can. But when I run into a case where I need to get my pet in to see a specialist and I can't, and it's happened to me, and I'm, I'm waiting six to eight weeks to see an oncologist or an internist, and I'm watching my, patient, my pet decline, what, how do I solve that problem? Well, I, I reach above me and I grab a book. I start looking at the color pictures first, and then I start reading second, and I figure it out on my own. There is no reason we can't do that for all our own patients. Of course, there are things that you can and can't do, right? I'm not going to be I'm not going to be buying a scope tower in my house and doing my own scopes, but but I could certainly do if I need a aspirate and look at a slide of my own dog, or for that matter, I could probably do a splenectomy if I needed to. So I feel like if you're if you're a specialist or a general practitioner, that if there's something that's that's a time suck in your day that's taking you away from what you really want to do, then you should try to figure out what that is and take it off your plate. And so you can focus on what, what you really enjoy doing. I feel if you're finding that your patients are not able to get the care they need because one, they can't afford it or they can't get in to see that um, specialist, maybe there are some things that you can do that, that used to be within the, the general purview of, of a practitioner, like those elective type of surgeries. By doing that, you will get better care or better access to care for the patient, probably more affordably. And then it will also allow the specialist, if they want to focus on the things that drive their practice, um, keep the neurologists in doing brain surgery, if that's what they enjoy, allow the surgeons to do adrenalectomies, if that's what they enjoy, um, allow the inter internist to do the scopes, et cetera.
That's the perspective I'm coming from. Yeah, no, I, I really like that. I, I really particularly like your self-driven approach to this because you're right. It, it's to say, I always say, well, you know what, what should we do about education and, and, and these things? And the truth is, you know, if I wanted to, it's been a while since I've done an interotomy. I just don't have a, I, I practice uh, regularly, but not enough to be doing, you know, surgical rechecks and things like that. And I sort of stepped away from surgery a couple of years ago. And, uh, but if I, I, I do think about sometimes, what if I wanted to pick this back up? What if this is where I want to go? Would I need to go back to some sort of uh, hands-on education course? Or is this a thing where I can line up my own mentorship opportunities, jump in, watch a couple of these things, you know, get somebody to maybe shadow me doing one or two, because I've done them before, uh, and just uh, and just sort of pick that back up. And the truth is, there's a lot of resources and opportunities for me to get these skills in my own way if I just decide that I want to do them. So I, I do really like that idea of just, uh, you know, put in the work, pull, pull the books, you know, get the insight. And there's, there's never been more resources and support there are now. If you uh, dream of doing team training with your team, getting your people together, getting them on the same page, talking about uh, how you guys work together in your practice, I'd love to help you. You can check out drandywork.com and check out the store. I have two different team training courses. These are courses for teams to do together to get on the same page and to talk about how you do thing, uh, do things. I have my uh, Angry Clients course and I have my Exam Room Toolkit course and uh, they are both available and there to come out. All right, guys, let's get back into this episode. Can you expand this idea out to support staff for me? Because I know this is something you and I have talked about before as well. So I love this idea. I love the general concept of where you're going. And to me, it's just the obvious ripples out from this is that the 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 thesis, the idea of, you know, you should figure out where your time is best spent and spend your time there. Well, uh, why wouldn't that ripple out to the front desk and to, and to my technicians and, and things like that? So can can you sort of color in those those lines a little bit for me? How do you see this uh, if if we start to, if we lean into kind of the idea that you're putting forward, which I really like a lot, how does that ripple out to the support staff? What does their path look like? Well, I think from a from a very selfish perspective, if the veterinarian looks at what they enjoy doing and then they try to focus their career on that path, something's got to give because chances are you're in you're in five different lanes of your practice. You're going to be on the wellness lane. You're going to be in the non-well, the chronic care, the procedures, the elective surgeries. If you're doing, if you're covering all those lanes, but you only want to be in one or two, then you have to figure somebody, how are we going to cover those other lanes? So if you're a wellness, if wellness is your thing, if you like the preventative medicine talks, if you like talking to, looking at blood work for yearly checks, if you like taking care of healthy pets, then you have to figure out a way to not do those other things. And that might be giving it up to a colleague. If your thing is dentistry, if you just want to line them all up on the table all day long and do dentistry after dentistry, somehow you're going to have to get out of those wellness, out of that wellness lane so that you can have time to do that. And one of the things we can do, we've, we've talked about this before, is we can utilize our support staff, especially our, our veterinary technicians, to the highest degree possible within the Practice Act that your state allows. So allow them to do the things that the state gives them the op- opportunity to do. You know, I, I, I was I go into practices every once in a while and I see, I see veterinarians cleaning the ears of pets and I see the technicians holding the pets. And that's great if that's what you enjoy doing. But then when I talk to the veterinarian and they say, boy, if I just, if I could have more time to look at the cytology, that would be, I'd love that because I love looking at cytology or I, or I want to do more procedures and I, I hate cleaning ears. Well, 
you have a perfectly capable staff member that's that's able to clean ears within the scope of their practice act. And so I think we need to open up the fact that we by, by allowing our staff to utilize the skill set that they're trained to do, we're going to give them greater opportunities to grow with the profession. They're going to be more of a revenue generating um, part of our practice as opposed to just a support piece. And it's going to allow us to focus our career where we want to go because they're going to be scraping off that, that the, those low hanging fruit things that, that allows them to expand into the, more of that mid-level practitioner role. That totally makes sense. And I think that's, that's been the aspiration for, for a while, you know, as far as leveraging our technicians. Talk, talk to me a little bit. I think, I think when most veterinarians look at where they spend their time and they think about things that they would like to maybe get out of, there's a lot of client communication that falls into that, that takes a significant amount of time and things. Uh, you've, you've had sort of an interesting career in working with technicians in, in different ways with, a, with Booster Pet and things like that. Talk, talk to me a little bit about how you can see support staff moving into to the client-facing and client-communication space. Uh, do you feel like there are significant opportunities there for us to sort of change up how we're, how we're practicing and engaging? Uh, and, and if so, sort of what, what are those opportunities going to look like? Anyone, whether it's a veterinarian or a staff or, or LBT or a VA, we all have inherent um, strengths and weaknesses. And some of those might be communication, some of those might not be. So first of all, you have to define, you know, do you enjoy being that, that communicator? I absolutely loved spending three hours with a client talking about seizures, drawing on my whiteboard, making them understand it. I love the connection that I got when they just, when they understand something, but that's not the best use of my time. And I would get, I would get drawn into it. You know, my staff would be tapping me on the shoulder and saying, Hey, we've got, you know, we got to get you over here to do this. Stop talking. So first of all, it's identifying the people that in your practice that love doing that. Um, Second of all, it's, it's, it's just a matter of repetition. So giving the same talk over and over again, albeit there are going to be some nuances, but giving the same talk over and over again about seizures is something that um, pretty much anybody can do, or it could be um, flea control or parasite prevention. It could be um, just wellness in general. Those are things that I've seen in our practice work very well at the technician and the VA level. That allows the veterinarian to get to the next case while that while that technician is talking to the owner and educating them about, you know, this is why we're testing for this disease or this is why we're using this preventative and this is what you need to know and this is when your pet needs to be vaccinated. These are these are topics that are happening so routinely on a day-to-day basis that uh, people people get excited about them. Staff love to talk about them. Wellness. They love to have that client interaction, and I think it allows them to expand their opportunities of growth within the veterinary space to be more than just um, a go get me this type of person or a hold this or a clean that type of person. It allows them to uh, be our colleagues, basically, in healthcare. And I, I utilize my nurses to the maximum ability <laughs> that I could in, in my practice. You know, it was. It wasn't me talking to the client about what to do with the with the next level of seizure medication increase. It was my nurses talking to the to the client, and then they would come to me and say, "Hey, uh, you know, so and so is doing this. It's already on phenobarbital. What do you want to do?" And I would say, "What do you want to do?" And they say, "Well, we are going to just increase it by twenty five percent. Check levels in two weeks." I'd say, "Yep, let's do that." <laughs> 
that's the kind of, you know, you still have to be responsible for the case. Sure. But I 100% believe that we can support our our coworkers to give them learning opportunities within veterinary medicine so that they can grow. And more importantly, so they can stay in the practice of veterinary medicine and not leave for something or some other industry where they may feel more valued. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. I love that approach to the old, what do you want to do? I had a case uh, earlier today, we had a possible parvo dog coming in and and my technician was like well what do you want to do with it and i said oh, you know what do you what do you want to do with it and i was like oh i was going to have them stay in the car and i was going to go to a fecal sample and and we'll do a parvo test and i was like you know what that sounds like a great plan man let's do that and it's just um yeah it's just it's uh it's it's one less decision i have to make and the other thing is just it's just it's coaching right and 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 you just you're just growing better and better people so what um when you start to think about this and sort of where it's all going are there things what are you most excited about when you look ahead and you go oh man i would love to see this happen in the next five to ten years this is what if if we as a vet profession could get our ducks in a row this is where i would like to see us go is there anything like that that inspires you i think the greatest uh, the thing that gives me the most hope is just the the, the idea of access to care and and i be, by that i mean timely access to care, and I also mean affordability of care. Um, what I've seen in the last um, several years is just the, the costs of veterinary, veterinary medicine go up at the specialty level, where it's, it's basically become that type of advanced care is, is really for the rich. People who, I mean, every pet is a luxury, essentially, we don't really need them to survive, but they're family members. And to you know, I'll just share a little story and I'll try to keep it very vague. But a couple, did I talk about my my neighbor the other last time? I don't think forget? so. Okay. Well, in between our last talk, uh, my neighbor calls me up and she says, Sean, I don't think Sadie's doing very well. She's She seems to be um, having a hard time breathing. So I go over to her house and looks like her dog's abdomen's bloated. It feels mushy. It's got no pulses. Her limbs are cold. So I think, wow. I, I think she's, I think she's, uh, you know, probably got a splenic rupture or something like that, a splenic mass. Um, we spent about an hour and a half just trying to get a specialty hospital within the area. I think we called six or seven different specialty hospitals to get her in that night. It was a Saturday night about 7.30. Couldn't find a single uh, surgeon that was working that night or on call. So I called my old hospital that I used to own and I said, talked to one of the ER doctors. And I was using the doctor card on every one of these I called. And I said, hey, uh, I'm, I'm coming in. I got my neighbor's dog. I, I think she's going to you know, need an evaluation, probably a hemoabdomen. And, and he was like, well, we don't, we don't have a surgeon on call tonight. And I said, well, I did one in, in vet school. So she's, she's either going to die on my hands or she's going to you know, die in the, in the ER. So we ended up taking her there. And thankfully, uh, a, the criticalist at the practice was just finishing up. Um, on a foreign body and a cat. So Criticals was doing surgery because the surgeon was out. And they did a fast scan on the dog and they decided, yeah, she's got a splenic mass and she's bleeding into the mass. Um, so they decided we're going to give her a transfusion, keep her overnight. So, so the first thing I learned that night was that what if that Criticals had not been there? You know, what, was I prepared to do a splenectomy in that dog? You know, I probably would have done it. I'm pre pretty sure she would have been okay. But yeah, it had been 25 years since I did one of those, and it was it was a junior surgery, so it was a while ago. And that <laughs> dog, 
that dog wasn't recovered. So <laughs> I don't know yeah. uh, if it would have gone so well, what it, but it would have been better than, than the dog just kind of crumping out. Sure, wasting it. away. Yeah. Right. Right. The second thing that, that shocked me was the, um, and I, I won't give any specifics, but it was the estimate for the surgery, mm. uh, which was, it, it blew me away and, and it's hard to shock me. Um, but, but it was probably five or six times more expensive than, than a surgeon friend of mine down in Orange County would have caught, would have charged. And so there was this insane, insanely huge disparity between what a person could afford to pay and what it actually costs to do. And, and I'm not talking about, you know, slightly off, I'm talking like orders of magnitude higher. Mm. Um, and you know, these people could have done they, they were able to do the surgery and, and the dog did have the surgery the next day with, with the criticalist. But I think about how many animals don't get that access to care just because the cost. And if we can take some of those really high cost procedures and put them back into the hands of the general practitioners, and, and I'm talking guardrails here. I'm not talking like, you know, adrenalectomies or anything. I'm talking like, you know, elective surgeries, uh, enucleations, um, uh, GDVs, you know, things like that. Um, things that when I was a, when I was preparing to go into vet school, the vets I worked with were doing all of these things in their practice and they were doing them because they had no choice. They, they, uh, they liked doing it. Plus there were no specialty centers at that time where I lived. So they either got sent to the university or they got handled in house. So the, I think what gives me the most excitement is that if, a veterinarian can expand their practice by doing things that that they're passionate about and be able to do those at a cost point that's going to save the client a ton of money but still make the veterinarian a ton of money then i think that that supports the industry as a whole it will it will raise up our standing back in the communities as the the person who can solve problems for people uh, that that idea of self-reliancy and um, problem solving. I think we, I like the, I love the idea that we can, we can learn to do that again. Dude, that's awesome. I love that vision. Sean, thanks so much for being here. Uh, where can people, where can people find you online? I'm, I'm somewhat dark. I'm only on LinkedIn. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> as I mentioned before, I think at that time I had 34 connections. I might have 39 now. So, oh, that's good. Well, I'm glad to see the, the first appearance on the podcast really moved the needle for you. Yeah, yeah, uh, get in line. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Awesome. Thanks so much for being here. Guys, thanks for tuning in. Take care of yourselves. Thanks a lot. And that's it, guys. That's what I got for you. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. Thanks to Sean for being on. I, I said, I really, I left this conversation just fired up about oh, this makes some sense. I like this. I like the idea of being a problem solver. I like the idea of GPs picking back up the scalpel or picking up the tools that uh, that they might have referred away and let other people use in the past. I think that it allows technicians to grow in their roles and to take a lot of stuff off of our plates and to earn a living wage for themselves and provide uh, pet owners with quicker access to care. And it still keeps us uh, with full schedules doing work that matters. And I really love what Sean was saying about it puts us back as being as people who step in and fix things. And that's what I've always wanted to be. So anyway, guys, I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Uh, take care of yourselves, everybody. Be well. I'll talk to you later on.